1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Let me read the passage, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We have a natural tendency to judge the quality of our life, to to judge uh, how we're doing in life based upon the the state of our outward circumstances. So here's what I mean. If, If my outward circumstances are going good, if I'm healthy, happy, successful, prosperous, if my life, you know, if life is good, as the t-shirt says, I'll tend to assume, well, I must be on the right track. Whatever I'm doing must be working. I must be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I, I must be, you know, in the zone, and so I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And conversely, when things start to fall apart, maybe we hit an illness or we, we have a series of difficult events that happen to us, or we have strain in relationship, and, you know, the hits just keep coming, we can often start to think, what am I doing wrong? How am I messing up here? Am I on the wrong track? Uh, Is God upset with me? Maybe God's punishing me. I, I need to adjust something. And of course, sometimes that may be the case, but but not always, right? Sometimes our outward circumstances don't align with whether or not we're living the way God wants us to live. Well, here in 1 Peter, uh, Peter is writing to Christians who are trying to follow Jesus, but whose outward circumstances are negative. These are Christians who specifically are experiencing hostility, um, rebukes, revilement, insults, reproach from the the pagan Greco-Roman culture around them, and and yet they're trying to follow Christ. Presumably, they didn't used to have a problem with their culture back when they were pagans, just like everybody else. There was no problem. And then they put their faith in Jesus. And then they start living a life that's consistent with the teachings of Christ and, and is different from the world. And all of a sudden, they've got a new problem because they've shifted and the world has stayed the same. And many of you can relate to this as Christians. You've had the experience of coming to faith in Christ, of, of changing 
you know, going from being your own little God to making Christ your Lord and, and trusting in Him and living a different kind of life. And, and the people in your life are going, what are you doing? And, and now there's suddenly tension where there wasn't tension before. Now there's suddenly, you know, this, this thing in your marriage that wasn't there before. And it's, in some ways, it's kind of your fault because you moved. You shifted ground. And, and so, the, you know, sometimes it boils up and sometimes it's under the surface. But it's difficulty and hostility and misunderstanding because of that. Or, or maybe you experience that at work or, or in school with your friends. Certainly, that's not only true at an individual level, but I think we, and we've talked about this before, as Americans today who are Christians, American Christians, we experience this, this kind of negative circumstance shift in the broader culture. As our culture is moving in a post-modern, post-Christian, in some cases, anti-Christian kind of direction as we're leaving our Judeo-Christian moorings and the morality that we've all understood and our culture shifts, suddenly we as Christians find ourselves in, in more negative atmospheric conditions to our faith. And so the temptation in those circumstances is to think, maybe we're doing the wrong thing. Maybe our approach is wrong. And, and we start to second-guess our faith and start thinking even about compromise in some situations. But Peter here is telling those Christians who are suffering, and he's telling us too, that, that you can't judge by your outward circumstances whether or not you're on the right track with the Lord. And in fact, Peter wants to tell us that if you're, if you're being persecuted or harassed or getting pushback or static because you're trying to follow Christ, you're actually being blessed. Look at verse 13 and 14. It's kind of crazy. He says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Like, just do the right thing. It's usually going to work out. But even if you should suffer, even if it doesn't work out, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. That, that suffering for following Christ, suffering for doing what's right, is actually a blessing. He reiterates it down in verse 17. It's slightly different take, a little different emphasis. He says in verse 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, so if God so wills it, because God rules everything, everything that happens in our lives comes from his hand. And sometimes God wills seasons of suffering in our lives for his purposes. And, and so if that's happening, and, and if it's for, because of the gospel, because of your faith in Christ, because you're trying to honor God and do what Christ teaches, and you suffer for it, it's better to suffer for that than for doing evil. You're blessed if you're suffering for your faith. That, of course, raises the question, uh, how is that a blessing? Because <laughs> when I'm suffering for my faith, you know, whether it's in little ways or big ways, I don't really feel blessed. I just feel kind of tired and stressed out and exhausted. It, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like, wow, what a blessing, you know? My boss mocked me in a, in a staff meeting because I'm a Christian. That was such a blessing, you know? Like, it doesn't feel like a blessing. Or, or take a really super extreme example. Think about um, uh, Pastor Saeed, who just was released in Iran. I don't know if you heard about him, but he was released this week in Iran. He'd been in prison for his faith in Iran in in the notoriously brutal Evan prison uh, for over a thousand days. I mean, could you imagine losing a thousand days of your life? Like, you know, you, you, come, you go in and your kids are this old and you come out and your kids are that old. 
and, and you're being, according to his accounts, beaten and deprived in there. So Peter is saying to Pastor Saeed and to all other Christians who are in extreme forms of suffering around the world, in prison, and in those kinds of situations, Peter is saying to them, you're blessed. Like, what? How is this a blessing to lose a thousand days of your life in a brutal gulag? Well, um, I I think part of the answer, or one way to answer this, is just to to look back at the teaching of Jesus himself. Because I think that here, as many cases in 1 Peter, Peter is drawing upon the teaching of Jesus, and especially the Sermon on the Mount. So put a bookmark here in 1 Peter 3. We're going to come back to it. Put a bookmark on page 1202. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, which is page 958. And let's, re- let's go back to Jesus and remember his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, page 958. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount, for those of you familiar with it, begins with this famous section that people call the Beatitudes. Famous words of Christ, you know, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. All these different blessed conditions. But jump down to the last two, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So if you're like, I'm going to do what's right in God's eyes, even if the culture calls me a hater, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to believe what's right. You're blessed. You're like, how is this a blessing? Ah, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may not be getting much love from the world, but you have the kingdom of heaven. It's yours. Or verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you. Don't you feel blessed when people insult you? (laughs) Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. I love it when people falsely say things about me. No, no. But no, 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 you're you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. Why? Rejoice and be glad. You know, go home singing in your car. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, there's going to come a day when we will stand with Christ in glory, when we've received our full inheritance, and on that day, we're going to look at what we have in Christ, and we're going to look at the, the, the little persecutions we suffered, and on that day, Pastor Saeed's going to be like, thousand days in heaven prison? Nothing compared to this, when you, when you have your inheritance in Christ. So in that sense, you're blessed. Because if you suffer with Christ, you will reign with Christ. If, if you stand with Christ in, in, at the foot of the cross, you will you'll glory with Christ at the empty tomb. And so it's worth it in that sense. So it's a long-term blessing. It's a big-picture blessing. It's an eschatological, if you want to use the theological language, an end blessing. And so going back to 1 Peter chapter 3 then, Peter says you're blessed if you're suffering. And so it's a different mindset, right? It's, it's a different way than we usually look at things, that, that if we're suffering for the sake of Christ or for doing what's right, it's actually a blessing. And, and here's the thing, when that mindset kind of like gets down into you, when, when you really start thinking that way, when, when, these, when this doesn't sound like a strange concept, but you're like, yeah, this, I am blessed to, to bear the disgrace of Christ in my life, then 
it's going to change the way you and I react to situations. It's going to change the way you and I react to our culture. It's going to change the way, you know, when you have that, that obnoxious, uh, you know, uh, militantly secular English teacher in your school who has, you know, has it out for Christians. You know, when you're experiencing that, you're going to have a different reaction to that teacher or to that boss or to that uncle who's always on your case or whatever it is. You're going to react differently. So, so what's it going to look like? If, if this truth that you're blessed if you're persecuted for Christ, it sinks into us, how do we respond differently? And, and here Peter gives us two examples of how it will change us. Number one, you won't be afraid. Verse 14, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Don't fear what people fear. Don't be frightened. Set apart Christ as Lord. That's a great little quote there. You notice that's in quotes. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. It's actually a quote from the book of Isaiah. And uh, I'd like you to see it because it's really super cool. So I know we're doing some flipping around this morning, but turn back to Isaiah chapter 8. So bookmark here again, and then go back to Isaiah chapter 8. It's on page 682. This is a great passage. Isaiah chapter 8, page 682. If we really believe that persecution for the sake of Christ is a blessing, then we're not going to be afraid of it. No need to fear. Isaiah chapter 8, page 682, verse 11. So just quick background. Isaiah writes about 800 years before Peter. Isaiah is in a time where the people of, of Judah and Jerusalem are under threat of invasion. It's a very negative, scary time for the people. Everyone's afraid. Everyone, everyone's worried. And this is what God says to Isaiah in verse 11. He says, the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Don't, don't buy into the conventional wisdom. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. Well, that's a good one for an election year, isn't it? (laughs) Don't believe the hype. Don't get caught up. Don't be afraid of of conspiracy and fear. Everyone else is terrified. Don't you be terrified. There's only one thing you should fear. What is it? The Lord. Verse 13, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He's the one you're to sanctify it, to view as holy. He's the one you're to fear. He's the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. And so there's only one we should fear, and it's the Lord. And he's our Lord. So so even fearing him is is awesome and and wonderful. So we, we shouldn't fear our circumstances. We shouldn't fear danger. We shouldn't fear these, these kinds of threats. We shouldn't fear what's happening around us or if our culture is leaving as Judeo-Christian moorings. I mean, it's, it's sad, it's terrible, it's bad, but we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't live in, with anxiety and worry about these things, and we shouldn't fear persecution. That's what Peter's trying to tell us. Isn't, aren't these great verses? I don't know, you, you know, a lot of us, probably all of us at different times struggle with anxiety, I don't know, do you, do you struggle with anxiety? Is that a kind of a, a recurring thing in your life? What are you worried about right now? Like, what, what's the thing that's like, you know, 
keeps coming back into your mind. You just get worried about there's something you're worried about. This is such a great weapon in the fight against anxiety. I feel like verses 12 and 13 are just a, a weapon you put in your Batman utility belt. And, and, when, and when you're fighting anxiety, because as Christians, we're not, we're not, to, be, we're not to be ruled by fear as Christians. We're, we're to be ruled by faith. And, and this is one of those weapons that we can use in our fight against anxiety as, as we pray and as we, we encourage each other and we can pull Scripture out. So maybe you want to memorize those verses there's only one I am to fear, and it's the Lord. I don't fear Supreme Court decisions. I don't fear election results. I don't fear my boss. I don't fear. I fear the Lord only. And so Peter pulls on that quote, going back to 1 Peter 3. And he says, if we view persecution for the sake of Jesus as a blessing that comes from the hand of God, that God is sovereign over, then we don't have to be afraid. We're not ruled by fear. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Verse 15, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. You know, oh, this is super cool. See that phrase, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts? The Greek phrase is actually sanctify or view as holy Christ as Lord. In other words, he's still quoting Isaiah 8. Except in Isaiah 8, he says, set apart Yahweh, the God of Israel, as as holy. View him as holy. And here, He's, he's still quoting it, except instead of Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, he puts in Jesus. Because Jesus is Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. And so here our focus is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has taken on flesh. And this is one of so many places in the New Testament where, where there's a quote from the Old Testament about the great God of Israel, God Almighty, and it's applied to Jesus himself which I just am baffled when people say the New Testament doesn't teach that Jesus is God. I mean, it's like plugging Jesus in place of God in all of these quotes. But the point is, we need to fear the Lord. Let Christ be large in your hearts. Let people be small. Let Christ be awesome in your sight. And let circumstances be small. Set apart Christ as Lord. And when we do that, it frees us up for a second action, which is to speak. We, we can open our mouths. We can tell people about Jesus. When I'm ruled by fear because I dread persecution, I'm going to clam up. But when I'm not ruled by fear, then I'm free to, to speak about my faith. You know, he says in verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So if I'm not afraid, then I can speak. Why do you believe that stupid stuff? Let me tell you. You know, not like, oh, hostile, hostile person, I'm closing up. Oh, it's a trigger word, you know. And, oh. You know, we're not afraid of that. We don't have trigger words that make us all clam up and need to go to a safe space as Christians. Right? We got Christ. We're like, okay. Yeah, all right. You don't get it. You think it's stupid. All right, let me tell you. Let me give you an answer for the hope that I have in Christ. It's, it's very confident because of this fearlessness we have. So, so what, what is your answer? Why, why do you have hope in Christ? Why do you have faith in Christ? That's something to think about. Hey, here's an exercise you can do today. Here's a practical thing you can do. So when you get together for lunch today or whatever, take 10 minutes and just role play and go around the, the table or whatever, wherever you are, and just say, okay, everyone give a, a one and a half, two-minute answer of why you have your hope in Christ. What is it? 
So pretend someone asks you, why do you believe that stuff? What are you going to say? And just like practice saying it to each other, you know, in a friendly environment with fellow Christians. So you should do that. Just get used to talking and, you know, say it. And then you think, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. And then you'll, you'll start to think about your, your, your script, your, your elevator speech of why you believe what you believe about the Lord. But of course, do it, verse 15, with gentleness and respect. Even if people are jerky in the way they come at us, we, of course, have been taught to follow the way of Christ and not repay evil for evil. And so, no matter how hard people are, we want to be a blessing back. We want to be kind in return. As it said back in verse 9, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. So we need to be blessed and blessing others. Isn't that great? So, so again, let's put it all together. If you're suffering for the sake of Christ, if you're suffering for doing what God teaches, you're actually blessed. And when that sinks in, it frees us from fear. We don't have to fear what people think. It doesn't matter. In fact, we're kind of not shocked if, people, if some people are negative. And then that, because we're not afraid, frees us to speak. We, we can tell people about Christ. And we don't have to be, we don't have to clam up, and we also don't have to be aggressive. We can just be loving and, and non-defensive and tell people what, what we think and why. But it all comes from knowing that God's blessing is in this. It's, it's great, just practical teaching. Aren't, aren't these such helpful verses? I, as I was studying this, I was like, wow, I, I really need this. This is a good little road map. This is a good little action plan as I live in today's culture. It's so applicable to the 21st century. But Peter doesn't stop there. He wants to further gym us up with confidence in Christ. And so we get verses 18 through 22. Now, I I just read verses 18 to 22 in the beginning, and I just want to know, as I was reading verse 18 to 22, did anyone start to feel a little bit lost? Right? So like the first, those first verses, it's like, yeah, you know, have an answer and don't be afraid. We're like, got it. But then verses 18 to 22, he starts getting into Jesus, who went and preached to, verse 19, spirits in prison who disobeyed in the days of Noah. What? And then the people were saved in the ark, and the, the water of the flood symbolizes baptism. What? You know, it just it gets really strange in those verses. I don't know, maybe some of you did a Bible study on that this week as part of a growth group, and your growth group was just went round and round and round. It's some really strange verses. If you feel that way, don't, don't worry. You're actually in good company because um, many scholars consider these verses to be some of the hardest, if not the hardest verses in the New Testament to understand and interpret. So if you feel confused by that, it's okay. <laughs> you know, the really smart guys are confused by this too. So, um, but that never stopped me from trying to make sense of it. So we're going to give it a shot. Uh, so so let, me, let me just tell you, big picture, what's the point of verses 18 to 22? And then, and then we'll dig into some of the weeds real quick. We'll look at it. But the, here's the big point. The big point is Jesus Christ, though he suffered, won the victory over all the forces of evil. That's the point. Jesus Christ, though he suffered unjustly, just like Christians may be suffering unjustly, he ultimately won the victory over all the forces of evil. Therefore, do you see the logic now? Don't be afraid of suffering because 
Jesus suffered, and he won the victory, and you're in Christ. So even though you may be suffering, you'll win the victory too. That's the point. So if you can get lost in all details, that's, that's, how this whole, that's how the big ideas all fit together here. So let's look at those verses then. Let's look at the victory of Jesus. Verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. All right, verse 18, that's actually super clear. That's really easy. In fact, verse 18 is a wonderful summary of the gospel. Great gospel summary. So so if you're looking at these verses and you're feeling really kind of like, what is all this stuff? Man, just hold on to verse 18. That is the money quote right there. There's the gospel. If you're new here, if you're not a Christian, if you have questions, if you're kind of a skeptic or you're investigating, and, and you want to know, all right, someone boil it down for me. What's this whole Christianity thing about? Oh, verse 18 is a wonderful summary of the very nut and core and center, the, the chewy, nougaty center of Christianity. is right in verse 18. It's the gospel. Christ died. There it is, verse 18. He died on the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For sins. Jesus died on the cross to pay, to bear our sins. Once for all, it's done. Nothing else you can do. It's paid in full through Christ. You don't don't add your penance to it. You don't add stuff like that. It's done. The righteous for the unrighteous. You can guess who each of those are. Jesus is the righteous. The unrighteous, well, that's all y'all and me. We're the unrighteous, and Christ has died for us. And why did he do it, verse 18? To bring you to God. I love that. He's brought us to God. You can't get to God on your own. I can't get to God on my own. Like we sang in that song, Nothing But the Blood. Not, you know, nothing good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's only what Christ has done that I can be brought to God. I can't get to God. I've got to be brought there. I've got to be carried there. And that's what Christ did on the cross. He made the way to bring us to God. And so this is the good news of the gospel, that if you're here this morning and and you want to know God, there's a way that's been made and it's through what Christ did once and for all to bring you to God. And so let him bring you. (laughs) Put your faith in him and let Christ carry you there and forgive you. And then once Jesus did that. It didn't stop there. He won the victory, right? Because that's the theme, victory. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So as Christians, we not only proclaim the empty cross once and for all, died for our sins, we also proclaim an empty tomb where Jesus has been raised and he was risen in victory. So there's the theme. Jesus suffered and he won the victory. Therefore, Christians in the midst of suffering, don't freak out. You win the victory because you're in Christ. Well, good. Guess we can leave it at that. Oh, then there's verse 19. Through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when, Noah, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What? <laughs> where, where did that come from? What does that mean? Really, really challenging uh, verse. And again, interpreters down through the centuries going back to the church fathers uh, have wrestled with 
these verses. Let me tell you what I think these verses are talking about. And the, the view that I'm articulating is one that's it's really held by the majority of scholars today. And I, th- I think it's right. Um, even though I don't get every little detail, I think this is right. I think what verses 19 to 20 mean is that after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to God's right hand in heaven. And part of his death and resurrection and ascension was that victory was preached or proclaimed to the forces of evil. So Jesus died, rose, and then went, and as part of his victory, his victory was announced to demons, if you want to think about it that way. Why do I, why do I think that? Why, why do scholars tend to think that? Well, here's just some really quick reasons for those of you who, like, who really want to understand this verse. Um, reason number one, there, there's an order. And look at verse 18. Put to death. Number two, made alive. Verse 19, went. So, so I think that he was put to death, he came to life, and then after that he went. So in other words, this is not something that happened while Jesus was in the tomb and he went down to the dead people and talked to them or something. This is something that happened after his resurrection. There's, there's an order of Greek participles there if you want to get really technical. Uh, reason number two, see the word spirits? When that word is used in the plural in the New Testament, it almost always, almost always refers to angels and demons. So it's, it, there's only one place it refers to dead people. And, and in that text, it's really clear that that's what it's talking about. But everywhere else, it's almost always angels and demons. Um, another thing is the theme of victory. You know, look down at verse 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. So again, the theme is Christ's victory over the enemies. And then fourth, and, and this one's kind of really interesting, a little weird, but there was a common Jewish tradition at this time, uh, it's found in some of the Jewish writings outside of the Old Testament, that in the days of Noah, when God judged humanity at the time of the flood, he also judged a, a group of evil angels and put them in prison. So here we're talking about Noah, here we're talking about spirits who are you know, in prison. L- look at Second Peter, flip over one page, just one page, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Here's this tradition, this tradition of the, the evil angels in the times of Noah. For if, for 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell or to, or to Tartus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. You see, so, so there's that theme. This, there's some spirits that were judged at the time of Noah, too. So, so I think Peter is just pulling upon that Jewish tradition. He's pulling upon all those things. And the point is, Christ has won the victory. So Christians who are suffering, don't sweat it. Christ is victorious. You'll be victorious. That's the point. Well, good. That's cleared up. Now it gets easy, right? Oh, no. What? Yeah. In a, verse 20, in it, Noah, now we're talking about the ark, in it, the, the, the ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. 
not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience to God. What? So baptism? No, wait a minute. Noah's flood symbolizes baptism, um, but but then baptism saves me, but it's not. But it saves me because of a clear conscience. Like what? It's just so hard to follow the the logic here. And I think there is a logic. I just think it's really compressed. And Peter's speaking really quickly in in shorthand. Maybe as he was writing this, he realized he was running out of scroll or something. I don't know. But it's it's really it's compressed writing, right? And and so he's 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 making a series of jumps. He, he's connecting dots in rapid order without a lot of detail. So we're trying to. Follow, follow his thought process here. So, so what I think, it, it, what, what he's saying here is, again, the theme is victory. He's comparing Noah's situation to your situation. Hey, guess what? You got a lot in common with Noah. In Noah's day, the people who followed the Lord were a minority. There's just eight. You ever feel like you're the only one? Well, you know how Noah felt. But don't worry. Noah won the victory in the end. Do you ever feel like man, when is God going to come back and fix this? Noah felt that way too. God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Lots of really, really, really bad stuff was going on in Noah's day. And, and you know, Noah could be like, wow, God, why aren't you fixing this? Do you ever feel that way? Be patient. The flood's coming. Be patient. And guess what? Noah was saved through water. You go, how was Noah saved through water? I thought Noah was saved through an ark. What does it mean, saved through water? I think what that means is, like, it's kind of grim, but like the water came and drowned all the evil people. He was saved through water. The water saved him because the, all the enemies were drowned. There was victory over the enemies. But now this is interesting. So now here's where he jumps again. And he says, that's like baptism. You're like, what? How is that like baptism? Well, it kind of is. What happens in baptism? You go under the water, because baptism in the New Testament is, is immersion. You go under the water, and you come up out of the water, right? Why, why do we do that? Why, why when we baptize people, do we go dunk and then bring them up? Well, it symbolizes Jesus, right? We've been buried with Jesus, and we've been raised. But it also symbolizes that the old you, the you before Jesus, the sinful you, is dead and buried and drowned. You've, the old you has been judged and dead. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. That old Jeremy is dead. That old Jeremy has been drowned in judgment, but I wasn't judged. Christ was judged in my place. So, so in baptism, Peter is, I think, seeing a confluence of the Noah story and the Jesus story. And, and the point of it all, even though it's a little bit mashed together, is victory and salvation and hope because of the resurrection of Jesus and how we participate in that. Not that baptism actually saves you. Baptism doesn't clean you from sin. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's that our consciences are clean toward God through Christ. And so the whole point is, Jesus has won the victory. You're in Christ. You will win the victory. Yeah, but I'm suffering right now. Don't worry. Think about Jesus. Think about Noah. They won the victory. You're you're on that side. You're with Christ. Have confidence. Have no fear. Continue speaking. Do you get it?
I think it's something like that is what he's trying to say. This is a wonderful passage for freeing us and giving us confidence to live boldly when we're facing hostility. We don't have to be afraid. We know how the story's going to end. It's all in the bag. It's all in hand. Christ has already won the victory. And we just have to trust in Him. When I was a freshman in high school, I uh, tried out for the basketball team. I may have told you this story before. Maybe it was when I was junior high. Anyway, I tried out for the team, and um, I was... It wasn't good. <laughs> and... Uh, the coach literally sat me down and two other guys who were equally not good. Uh, he literally sat us down on the bench at the end of tryouts after a couple of days, and he said to us, he said, listen, you guys can be on the team. You can wear the jersey, you can come to things, but I'm telling you now, you'll probably almost never play. But if you want to be on the team and you want to practice, you could be on the team. And we're like, you know, in junior high, like so desperate for belonging. We're like, that sounds like a great deal. So I was on the basketball team in seventh or eighth grade. And, and now, you know, and I was like really short for my size at the time. I was really a late bloomer and, you know, wasn't good at basketball. Now I'm tall and still not really great at basketball. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I would get to go into, the, into games. And, you know, I got to go into games when the score when we were up by like 25 points. I'm not exaggerating. And there was like a minute and a half left. And that's when I got playing time. Because there was no way at that point I could screw it up. I couldn't lose it. It was done. And then I'd get to go in, and everyone knew. It's like, oh, here come the scrubs. Here come the eighth stringers. You know, here they come. And we'd come in the game, and... You know, and, and we were, you know, the disdain from the opposing team because they knew that, the, you know, the bench warmers were coming in. That, you know, just like that, the final insult to them that these like, guys would come in, you know, who were like bouncing it off their toe. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, you, you, can, you, could feel, you, you could feel offended by that. You could feel offended by that. You could have your ego hurt, like, I can't believe it would only put me in that. But, or you could just accept reality. I was really not great at basketball. And just go with it, right? And, you know, as I was studying this passage, for whatever weird, you know, my mind is just weird. I made a connection to that experience in my life. And I'm like, you know, that's kind of how it is with Jesus. Like, the game's over. It's won. There's nothing that's going to change that. The other team knows they're done. The devil's putting X's on his calendar until the return of Christ. And then he's done forever. All the forces of evil in this world that are railing against Christ and railing against God, they're so done. They're down like a million to nothing. And Jesus is like, okay, guys, go ahead, you go in now. Like, what are we worried about? (laughs) The battle's over. We just need to go in and play. And all the pressure's off. We just need to be faithful to the Lord. Let's, let's not worry about what the other team does. Let's not worry about the, the, the attitude people are giving us. Let's not worry about you know, getting a hard pick sometimes. It's just, whatever. It's over. We all know this thing is done. And the fact that Christ is entrusting us with the gospel 
is just like the last poke in the devil's eye. And guess what? Not only did I rise from the dead and conquer you, I'm now going to bring my kingdom with this group of yahoos. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pull these guys off the bench. I could send angels to proclaim the gospel. Instead, I'm going to get guys like Paul. And I'm going to get guys like you. And these are the guys who are going to take the gospel to the world. How do you like that, devil? You know? I'm, I'm going to beat you with the scrubs. So just go into the game. Don't be afraid. Whatever this world throws at us is just spiteful envy. Christ has already won the victory. He has gone into heaven. He is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to Him. And someday Christ will return in glory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we give you a, a, a clap of praise because you are worthy for what you've done. Lord, help us to see your glory. Help your glory to transform us and to give us, take away our fear. Oh God, I pray that we would go into the South Shore of Boston this week without fear, confidence in your victory. Lord, I pray that, that you would uh, help me to walk into the Middle East without fear. Lord, that you would send us to all kinds of places without fear because we know that you've already won the victory. Oh Lord, Give us confidence. Give us eyes to see. Help us to set apart Christ in our hearts as Lord. And Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here today who uh, is maybe not there yet, maybe not convinced of all these things, maybe not sure why everyone's clapping and amen. And Lord, I just pray that, that you in your sweet, gentle way, Jesus, would show your glory to them too. Just like you came to us. We were so stubborn and came and you showed us who you were. And I just pray, Lord, for that person who's still like, I'm not sure. Lord, would you show your glory to them? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do that. Please, please, please. In the name of Jesus, amen.